Our, uh, our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids, and the rest of you can open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Thanks, Frenchie. Um, so as you turn there, uh, let me, let me uh, echo Pastor John and welcome all of our uh, new guests. If you're a first or second time guest, we would love for you to take this little connect card that you received in your worship guide when you came in. Uh, fill it out. It's our way of getting to know you. We value relationships here at Redemption Hill. And uh, if you're new and you did not have an opportunity to drop by the Connection Center uh, to get one of our free gifts for you, uh, then please do that on your way out. We would love uh, to, to hook you up on the way out today. And uh, yeah, just so excited about uh, Multiply March and thinking about God's uh, heart, not just for Boston, but for our world. And uh, excited by, uh, you know, the updates today, what God's doing in New York City and what we're going to hear in the coming weeks. So be praying about that. Uh, don't, don't think that, hey, this is like for everyone else, right? But, but how can we put our personal prayers, our personal dollars even, our time uh, to serve people and be a part of a mission so much bigger than ourselves. And speaking of, I don't know if you caught the, 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 the post on social media this week, but we can celebrate, are you ready for this, that 19 people in the life of Redemption Hill have expressed interest in serving with one of our teams just over the past two weeks. So can we give it up for those people? And for what God is doing uh, in our church. You know, it's just so awesome. We always say that, you know, Redemption Hill, we are where we are, obviously because of God and his grace, but also because uh, collectively we own the mission together, right? It's not just a few people, but it's all of us putting our effort and energy in uh, to making Redemption Hill uh, what it is in the hands of God. Well, uh, thank you for being here. I got to tell you what, uh, I am a little bit disoriented right now because I'm looking out and week after week when I see certain people up in this section, you're down here and I'm like, oh, they mustn't be missing today. I don't see them. I wait, they're over here. Uh, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed your journey from wherever you're seat, you sat, whether it's two seats or two sections, whatever. Uh, way to go. Way to be brave. We're just proud of you, all right? God loves you and we're proud of you. So way to go. Um, but but today, today what we're going to be talking about is how we rep Jesus in Boston, all right? Repping Jesus in Boston. That's, that's the title of the message today. And if, if maybe you're thinking like rep, rep, repping, what are you talking about? Okay, that is uh, for, for the rest of you, representing Jesus in Boston, okay? Because uh, another might be crystal clear, a little bit of, you know, Kalingo. Um, and I even thought about wearing my Celtics jersey today. Uh, but the last time I tried to wear it, you know, number one, my wife said uh, that I wasn't looking too good. Um, and then number two, um, you know, last night, about last, it was just, you know, um, so, but hey, the Celtics are rolling. So just, just imagine, you know, me up here representing the Celtics, representing our city. God wants us to represent him right where he places us. And, and this is a, a question that, Christians have wrestled with throughout the centuries, how do we live in this world as lovers of God and representatives of Jesus Christ? To put it in these concrete terms, how do we live for God in this city of Boston? And historically, there have been Three primary responses of Christians and the church that uh, have been given and practiced 
throughout the centuries. Uh, one, one is Christians against the culture. Okay, so, so it's, it's a, an approach that says, hey, uh, Christians are often at odds with the values of the world and the world system. And so uh, we're going to either push back and resist or we're going to withdraw and isolate. So on the one hand, you have Christians that are saying, you know what, let's have nothing to do with the world. Let's have nothing to do with the culture. Let's separate ourselves as far as we can. But then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have not Christians that are against the culture, but Christians that are of the culture. And Christians that are of the culture are those that are so much like the world, so much entangled with the world's way of doing things that there's not much of a distinction at all between how Christians are living their lives and how everyone else is living their lives. And certainly we don't see that squaring with the words and message of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see Peter advocate for and what we believe as pastors we should live out our faith in Christ in the city of Boston is not Christians against the culture, the culture is so bad, or certainly not Christians of the culture, that the culture is so great that we want to be just like it, but we want to be Christians in the culture. Christians living out our faith amongst people who may not see Jesus as we see him yet, but nevertheless, we understand, you might want to write this down, there are certain things in the culture that we can receive as good gifts from God. There are other things that we should reject, but there are also other things that we can, yes, redeem in the world in which we live. And so Peter is going to help us with this. These words in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2 actually start a new section that runs through 4.11 and provides the theme for not only these uh, two chapters, but many argue the theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. And so I want to read these words for us, and then we're going to break them down and consider how we can live as followers of Jesus in the city of Boston. This is what Peter says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If I were to sum up these words in one practical sentence of what this can look like in our lives, I would say that representing Jesus in Boston depends on us living desirably different lives, right? Representing Jesus in Boston depends on us living desirably different lives. I want to give you five ways that we see right here from these two verses of how we can live desirably different lives as we represent Jesus here in this, yes, great city of 
Boston. So what is the first way? Number one, we need to receive encouragement from trusted friends. Now, this is just like, this is so uh, obvious with the first word, but sometimes we read the, the Bible so quickly that we kind of miss the depth of what uh, is, is being communicated to us. And I, and I don't want us to do that this morning. We see this first word Peter uses. He's addressing these followers of Jesus as beloved. That, that means that they are loved by God and, yes, loved by Peter himself. So he, he speaks uh, affectionately to them. He speaks as, as someone who, who loves them, who has a relationship with them. Um, some translations say, dear friends. And so we can see this kind of uh, friendship that Peter enjoys with the people to whom he's writing. And that teaches us that in the church, the church should be the place of all places where friendships are formed and where friendships flourish. That's, that's what we see here as Peter begins to write to them. And, and as we think about friendships flourishing, I think about the the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, where he talks about that friendships deepen as two people are chasing after the same thing, share the same values. So as we're going down this road, this journey of faith in life through Christ, our relationships grow deeper and deeper because we're chasing after this common faith and this common goal to honor God with our lives. But as we do that, as we journey the road together, it's so important for us to encourage one another on the journey. This is what Peter, Peter does. He says, beloved, and then what are the next, next two words? I urge. I urge you. So the word urge, it, it means uh, to, to earnestly appeal, even beg. And so we get the sense that there's, there's a seriousness with, with which Peter is speaking, that his words are carrying weight. This is not a take it or leave it kind of message that Peter is speaking to them. And I just want you to think about your friendships for a moment. In your friendships, are you experiencing this kind of friendship and relationship in, in your life right now? So to have a kind of friend that, that loves you just as you are, that says, I'm committed to you. We, we share uh, the, same, the same love for one another, even in Christ. We talked about last week the same like familial uh, blood in terms of be, belonging to the family of God. And so I love you just as you are, but yet I know that God is calling us to a new place, a deeper experience together. And so there are going to be times when I put my arm around you and I say, you know what? God is with you. You've got this. Let's keep moving forward. Even though it's hard at times, even though there is resistance, let's keep moving forward. And then there are going to be other times where maybe we don't come alongside and put our arm around one another, but we even sit down and look each other face to face and just say, hey, you know this thing going on in your life. Could, could you explain what you're thinking about that? Could, could, you, could you share the, the wisdom of the decision that you've either made or you're thinking about making? We all need friendships like this. This is the kind of friend that Peter was to these followers of Christ. Hebrews 3.13 says, but let us exhort or let us encourage one another daily as long as it is, is called today so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
It's a simple way of saying that every single one of us, every single day, needs someone to encourage us in life. We need to have those kind of friends. And yes, as Jesus would teach us about loving our neighbor, we need to be these kind of friends. Be a voice of encouragement. Listen, it's not always easy representing Jesus in in a city like Boston. And so we need to come alongside of one another and to give encouragement and to receive encouragement from trusted friends. Then number two, we see that we need to remember our identity as citizens of a better city. Remember your identity as citizens of a better city. Peter refers to these friends. When he says, beloved, I urge you, then he says, he he calls them um, sojourners and exiles. Some translations say uh, strangers and aliens. What what does he mean by this? Uh, A sojourner is someone who is just passing through uh, a given area, land, or territory, right? they, They don't belong there, but they're just passing through. That's why, uh, you know, he, he also used the word, uh, can be translated strangers or aliens, um, that, that, that there's, there's, there's something, you know, different about their experience because that's not where they're from. Ultimately, that's not their home. I don't know if you've ever visited a foreign country, but I can remember uh, one of the first times I did that as uh, a 20-year-old college student. Uh, our church took a group to Hong Kong to be on mission and to, to serve missionaries who were serving there and the people of Hong Kong. And I can remember getting off the plane and just being kind of overwhelmed by all of the words that I was hearing that I had no clue what they meant, seeing words plastered on signs, and I had, we had no clue what they said. Then you move about the city and you hear sounds that you've never heard before. You smell aromas that you've never smelled before. Just, just a, a, a disorienting experience. And maybe for those of you who have immigrated to this country or you're you're from another country but you're studying here uh, you know how 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 difficult and different it can be when you're just sojourning and passing through or or maybe you've moved here uh to, to live in america it's just a different experience right I mean, think about, think about right now, just even today, for this one hour, many of you made the sacrifice to move from one seat to another, and it feels like a different experience. Hey, here's why we did this, by the way. Thank you if you're watching online or listening. We ask all of uh, the people here today to move from one seat or one section to another. And it's just like a little, a little um, you know, kind of test case for you, a little experiment for you to think about. Okay, this feels different for this one hour of my day, but God is calling me to live differently the other 163 hours of my week as I follow Jesus. We're sojourners, we're exiles, we're aliens, we're strangers. The, the point, these two words are coupled together to communicate that this is not our ultimate home. It's not. We are citizens of a better city. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen, we may not always be treated well. We may not always enjoy the same privileges or the prestige or power that others do at times because of our commitment to Jesus. And yet what what Peter is doing, he's, he's trying to shift their perspective to remind them that though that may be true, that you are citizens of a better city. As great as, great as Boston, we love, we love Medford, we love Somerville, we love Everett and Malden and Revere. Anyone, you know, I just love saying Revere. Um, but, but as great as Boston is, we belong to a better city, this God's city, this, the city of God, the, the city that is coming, that there will be unlike any other city that anyone has ever experienced. Peter's saying, look ahead, look up. Remember that, that though this can be difficult, there is a better destination ahead. Keep living your life for Christ. Don't give up. Don't be deterred. Don't back down. Keep representing Jesus right where you are. It is worth it. But as you do, as you live differently, as you sometimes, the world seems so strange to you, its values and ways of doing things, and then also you seem so strange to the world at times, just know that you are going to then have to, number three, fight for your soul. Fight for your soul through honorable living. This is what he goes on to say at the end of uh, verse 11 and into verse 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, what, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the heart of Peter's encouragement to them. And this is the heart of God's encouragement to us this morning, that that he wants us to fight for our souls and to fight the passions of our flesh that are waging war against our soul. Think, Think about this. As you journey through the streets of Medford, the streets of Somerville, Cambridge, Boston, uh, every single day, as you hang out with friends, play video games, shop at assembly, attend lectures, work out at the gym, commute to work, go to movies, surf the internet, you are going to have thoughts and desires that are contrary to God's desires for you. That's what Peter is talking about when he, when he says the passions of the flesh. He's talking about desires within us that would not line up or mesh with the desires of Jesus Christ. And he, and he says in very strong terms that these desires, what theologians would call indwelling sin, that, that these indwelling sinful desires are actually on a militaristic campaign against your soul. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty, pretty serious. 
And, and even this language, isn't, isn't there just a case in point in this language about like the culture would say like, waging war against your soul? What, what, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, don't be so strange. Don't take sin so seriously. After all, it's not really a big deal. Everyone slips up. No one is perfect. God is love. God will forgive you. Lighten up a little. Just have another drink. Don't worry about what your wife might think in this situation. And Peter's saying all of that. And the sinful desires that we push up against and wrestle with on a daily basis, it's like a war going on within you. Is, is, this, is this how you see the desires of your heart that are contrary to, to, to God's desires for you? Romans 8 puts it like this in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if you think like, okay, Paul, you sound super radical. Peter, you sound super radical. Where did you get this from? I love the song that Dan sang earlier. The song that he wrote is from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Welcome back, Dan. It's great to have you lead. Dan had a baby and shifted off. It's good. Give it up for Dan. It's great to have him back. Sterling's in the house, little baby Sterling. He's listening to the sermon, super engaged, looking around at everybody else but me. Um, so, but what did Jesus say on the, in the Sermon on the Mount? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Now, believe it or not, there are some people who have actually taken that literally. That's not a literal exhortation. But it is a metaphorical one to show how we should relate to our sinful desires and how we must put them to, to death. It's, the, it's, it's that serious. So, so Peter describes it in, in two ways. He gives a twofold encouragement. Number one, to abstain, but then number two, to live honorably. Number one, to abstain from these passions of the flesh. I, thinking about this made me think about uh, life as a kid in the elementary school kids or up in Redemption Kids right now. But when I was a little first grader, little Tanner, you know, with like snow white hair and, uh, you know, walking in to this uh, football stadium, the high school football stadium for, check this out, a just say no rally. All right. So they gave us all green T-shirts and on the front of the T-shirt, it said what? Just say no. Anyone ever experienced a just say no campaign back in the late 80s? You know, it was all about fighting drugs and substance abuse. And part of that campaign was teaching children of the dangers of drugs and, and, and then rallying to say, hey, in your life, as you move on, you need to be prepared to just say no. 
And by the way, here's a little tip. If you're ever hanging out with kids and teaching kids and you want to teach them a lesson, if you just get them to chant something over and over and over again, somehow they just really love that and then they remember it for the rest of their lives. Adults, eh, not so much. So I won't make you do it today. <laughs> but, 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 but Peter, this is, what he's, this is what he's getting at. He's saying, look, when you have these sinful desires that are contrary to the life of Christ, you need to say no. No, thank you. I can do without that. That's not going to build me up. That looks like a gift that I would really enjoy. But the, pa- the pleasure will be temporal and the pain will be lasting. It's not a gift. Like, it looks like, oh, it looks so good that, that it might be, like, even from God. Like, why wouldn't God give me that? Why wouldn't, if, if it's this good and this pleasurable, then, man, this must be. But it's not. It's not a good gift from God. It's not going to bring ultimate peace and satisfaction and joy to your life. And so Peter says, Abstain. Listen, this is one of the values, by the way, of of the Lent season, where as we journey to Easter and we journey toward the cross and we practice fasting, I hope you've jumped in in some way, shape, or form, or you're at least praying about it, and you can start today or tomorrow. Listen, to give up food or some other pleasure in your life that just like a you know tv technology for a window of time whatever we're not we're not uh, prescribing any kind of particular fast as a church other than saying on wednesdays hey fast for, for lunch if you're led to so we can all focus in and pray together on certain themes but but here's the point one of the reasons why jesus gives us fasting and he says when you fast as an expectation is because when we can learn to discipline ourselves and have mastery over our bodily desires, then that helps us be able to have mastery over our sinful desires. If you can say no to food, guess what? You can say no to sin. And so Peter says, abstain, number one. Then he says, number two, keep your conduct. Live in in, in such a way that you are living a very honorable life. What, What God is calling to us to is an exceptional life. He, he wants us to be distinct, but I love this, not, not distinct to the point of being obnoxious, you know? Uh, so, so it's like sometimes Christians are like, man, I got to be different. I got to be strange. And I'm going to be strange for strange's sake. But that's not what God's calling us to. We're distinct. We're we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we flavor the world. This is why Jesus said you're, you're like salt and light, that, that as you live in the world in the ways that follow me, you're just an everyday person. You're doing the same things. You're going to work. You're sharing meals. You're watching the Celtics and getting upset at Westbrook when he dunked on us in the fourth quarter, you know. But, but you're also carrying out particular values that actually are amazing because that's what God wants for all of us. Just think about some of the countercultural priorities that we hold to that strike the world as a bit odd or strange. For starters, think about where you are right now. I mean, carving out time on your weekend to attend worship. When so many people would like, 
weekend when I'm not working my 40, 50 hours, man, it's time to relax. It's t- you, do you on the weekend. Don't do Jesus. You know, you can pray anywhere. You can use spiritual. You can take a, you know, and it's, it's, it's a bit countercultural. So like, this is a priority of my life. This is, this is, I'm committed to this group of people worshiping God together, growing on the same journey through life. Or, or what about another one? Charitable giving. Did you know that the average Christian, now we're talking about Christians, so this is, gives 2.5% of their income to charity. In the Great Depression, it was 3.3. And you want to talk about like a lifestyle of generosity being strange and countercultural? New England is the least generous region of our country when it comes to charitable giving. And so what an opportunity when, when, we, when we live a life that says, hey, I'm going to give to the mission of God. I'm going to give faithfully to my local church. I'm going to take a few extra dollars. I'm not going to go out to eat this month, Marsha. Let's try to do this so that we can give more to multiply March and to meet some needs in New York City, Montreal, and the world. Let me teach you a little something that one of my mentors taught me. And I know we don't talk about money a lot. By the way, if you're new, you're thinking, oh, man, this is one of the stereotypes of churches. They just want my money. Listen, if you're new, we don't, we don't want you to give a dime. We don't expect you to give a dime. We, 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 we do expect stewardship of what God has entrusted to us if we're all in on this mission that we give together so that we can further the mission of this church and God's mission in this city and the world but it's a response of worship and stewardship, right? Jesus talked about money all the time. Just read the Gospels. Talked about it way more than we do at Redemption Hill. But I want you to hear this. When, when, when I was, you know, just out of high school and, and in college and working part-time, one of my mentors said, you know, because I was asking, it's like, you know, how do I even think about this? And is it, like, should I give on, like, my, 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 my salary, like, what I'm getting as a wage or after taxes? And so, um, so, so the encouragement was, hey, you should really make every effort to follow the, the pattern in the Bible. This is not a rule, by the way. We don't say, hey, you got to give 10%. If you're not giving 10%, a tithe that you're not faithful to God and, and being faithful to what we're after as a church family. So we don't teach that. But we do think that it's a, a, a clear pattern that can be healthy to say, you know what, let's strive for that. And, and God, by your grace, I want to, right? Because our heart, as God changes us, we want to be generous. We want to give more, right? Not less. But this is what he taught me. He said, if you don't start giving 10% right now when you're working part-time and making next to nothing, it's going to be that much harder when you're working full-time and at the peak of your salary. And I know that's counterintuitive, but experientially, these are the facts. It gets, expenses go up. it's, It's harder to to, to give more when you're starting in that place. And so just as an encouragement, as we think about giving to God's mission, giving to the local church, listen, there's no judgment. If you don't give a dime, we don't judge you. But God is inviting us to a, a countercultural generosity that maybe if you're not giving anything, you can start giving something. If you give 3% of what God's entrusted to you, maybe God's calling you to go to 4%, 5%. If you're 5%, maybe it's 8%. By God's grace, even though we've had more babies and they don't get 
less expensive. <laughs> Marcia and I have not only maintained, but almost every year we've upticked, and it hasn't been a huge uptick, just to be transparent, but we've upticked our giving to Redemption Hill every single year since we started in 2010 or 11. And I don't say that. It's like, hey, Pastor Tanner, way to go. You're so generous. Keep it up. I share it as just an example and a testimony to say when you steward what God has entrusted to you, God has sneaky ways, very sneaky ways of taking care of you and blessing you in ways that you would have never dreamed. Can I get an amen if you've experienced that? Thank you. And so as we've shifted, we've even made a shift from our giving platform online, from push pay to subsplash. It's a great opportunity just to reevaluate where are we financially? What is God calling you to? I just dare you to pray about it. Just dare you to pray about it. And, and maybe it's a small shift, but it will not only help further the mission of God, it will bring joy to your heart when you follow Christ and his generosity. Attending on Sundays, worshiping, giving our, our financial resources. We, we, we don't even have time to get into sexual morality. The world is saying, you know, enjoy sex anywhere at any time. And God's saying enjoy sex with your spouse. So, so, so strange and yet so supernaturally powerful in God's design. We could talk about volunteering our time and, and, and just, you know, how we use our tongues and what we, you know, laugh at when jokes are like, there's so many different opportunities to live counterculturally as followers of Jesus, right where he places us. But as you do, as you do, just know this, that you will meet resistance. Sometimes it may be explicit, sometimes it may be implicit, but you will experience some resistance. And that's why, number four, we need to not hate the haters. All right? You didn't expect to hear that point in church this morning. But number four, don't hate the haters. And we get this right from verse 12. Look at what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles so honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see. So, so, so here's what's going on. People see this countercultural way of life, and they're upset about it. And they're even calling the good things that people do about honoring God with their life and being generous and, and giving of their time, uh, serving others, loving people in a way, sacrificing their health for the sake of someone who is sick. And they're saying, that's not good, that's evil. And how could that be? Well, let me just explain it to you. Anytime that someone is living contrary to the way you're living your life, it is a tacit rebuke to your life. So to put this in very plain terms, if you come up to me this afternoon or maybe, you know, a month from now when it's, you know, not 30 degrees but 50 degrees and we get that grill cover off and you're hanging out on my back deck and you're saying steak is nasty, especially ones that are cooked to perfection, medium, with that pink running through the middle. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you say that, you know what I'm going to want to do? I'm going to want to pop the grill on. Let me show you how nasty it is with every single bite. Right? It's just the nature. It's just the nature of the human heart. 
that there's something contrary to the way we do things, our preferences, our, our lifestyle choices, that we naturally resist it. And, and so if you tell me by your life that God wants you to devote time to him, to be sexually pure, to be financially generous, I'm going to call you crazy and strange for not bowing down to the same gods that I do. And so when that happens, we have two fundamental options. We can either put our fist up, and usually what this looks like in our culture, by the way, is a war of words on Facebook. (laughs) And let me tell you something, that's usually never, ever, 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 ever constructive or helpful for people. We're big advocates of relationship and personal conversations and, oh yes, more than that, love. So we can either put our fist up when people say things or do things, you know, or, or we can put our arms out and be ready to love them like God has loved us. That's what Peter's plan is. He's saying even in the midst of being opposed, you keep living your life that, that, that God has called you to. And we're going to see in the, in the coming chapters, he's going to talk about what this looks like as living as a citizen, as living as an employee, of living in relationships, even in marriage, what this can look like in a very countercultural way that is in the world but not of the world. And so number four, don't hate the haters, but the, the ultimate purpose of loving them and not hating the haters is not so that people can look at you and say, oh, wow, so amazing. Man, they're so, they're so different. They're, they're just, I want to be like them. The purpose is so that they would look to your life and your life would be like a window that points them to the greater reality, the greater reality of God's work through you. So that they would say, no, it's not how amazing Ashley and Sarah and Monica and John are, but it's how amazing God is. Look at, look at verse 12 one more, more time. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they say these things, that you're evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What, what Peter means by glorify God on the day of visitation is when Christ returns, when he comes back, and every single person, including every single person in this room right now, will stand before God one day, we're either going to have a response like we do right now of either, God, you're amazing, I love you, and my life is yours, that's glorify, or God, no thank you, I reject you, I want nothing to do of you. And what Peter is saying is when you live a desirably distinct life, that you have the opportunity to reflect God in such a way that other people are compelled by your life and your message and they want in on it. That's the ultimate prayer. That's what we're after. People are going to go from not knowing who God is, not having an awareness of God, to... uh, interest in Jesus, investigating who he is, grasping the truth, understanding the implications, and then saying, yes, just as you have given your life to follow Jesus because he is really better than any other path that I can discover in this world, I'm following Jesus as well. 
This happens through proximity and consistency. I wish I had time to tell you about Deborah Kamara and Lee Chastain who just were hanging out week after week and month after month and year after year at ball fields for little league games and just building a relationship to the point that now, years later, Deb is a follower of Christ because she got to know Lee. Proximity and consistency. Where do you have that? You have that at work? You have that in your neighborhood and you have it in places like ball fields. And, and, and what happens over time is Peter echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 16, when he says to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as we wrap this up, I just want to ask you a few questions. What is your posture to the world around you? Is it one of withdrawal and isolation or is it one of engagement and witness? Do you take sin and temptation seriously? Are you waging war against the desires that are waging war against you? Are you shining a compelling light that will make others want to know God like you know him? Eugene Peterson paraphrases these two verses like this. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live exemplary lives among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then, then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. This is how we're going to represent Jesus in Boston. And when we do, he's going to change the lives of the people around us by his good grace. Let's pray together. God, we ask that these words would be true of us and true of, of our church and true in the city of Medford and greater Boston. And so, God, we need your encouragement, Lord. We need you to, to, to move us out to live as aliens and strangers, to, to not uh, be uh, against the world or of the world, but to be in the world the same way that Jesus would be in the world if he lived here, right here, right now. And so, God, we thank you that you give us everything we need to live our lives for you in this great city, the city that we love so much. And so, God, would you move us out to shine your light so that others would be compelled to follow you and to know you and to love you like we do. God, we ask that you would even change our hearts right now. In whatever areas that you've spoken to us about, Lord, that we would take that step of commitment to follow you, to say, God, my life is yours in every single area. Make me like Jesus. We pray in his name.